0: Well, please turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Genesis chapter 1. We'll be reading, first of all, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And then we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And then Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. Beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Please pay uh, pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there was gold. Where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delam and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river. Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Well this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Well, so far in the book of Genesis, we have considered God's week of creation. Uh, We considered how in days one through three, God created these, these great domains and these great kingdoms. The sky and the sea, the day and the night and the dry ground. And then days four through six, God filled these kingdoms with rulers At the conclusion of these six days of creation, God judged or evaluated his creation and deemed it to be exceedingly good. And then, God entered his eternal seventh day Sabbath rest. Now this morning, I'd like us to focus our attention, or or zoom in you could say, on one particular aspect of God's week of creation. Namely, the creation of man In the image of God. What does it mean for man to be made in the image and likeness of God? Why is it that the most fulfilling and satisfying life we can live in uh, in this world is a life that strikes the proper balance between working and resting? Why is it that we all need to physically rest? No one here can literally work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We need daily and weekly rest. Well, the doctrine of the image of God is foundational for us to know how we are to live within this created universe. And then when you think about the gospel, why didn't Jesus just float down to earth as a 33-year-old adult and immediately die on the cross? Why was he born in a manger? and develop into a a toddler, and then a boy, and a youth, and a young adult? Why did he spend 30 plus years on this earth before he died on the cross? Moreover, why after his resurrection did he ascend in his humanity back to heaven to be seated at God's right hand? Well, the doctrine of the image of God is foundational to our understanding of the gospel. If we get this doctrine wrong, we will at best have an elementary understanding of the gospel, and at worst, we will have a distorted understanding of the gospel. And so what does it mean? What does it mean for man to be made in the image and likeness of God? Well, in order for us to understand what it means for man to be made in God's image, we first need to ask, what is God like? What is God like? What is the God in whose image we bear like? What is God like? Well, based on what we've already considered in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Genesis presents in these chapters a God who works for a rest. God worked in those six days of creation, and then he rested. He entered his seventh-day Sabbath rest. And we bear the image of this working and resting God. Therefore, what it means for us to be made in God's image is that we are called to work as God worked. And our work it was meant to be evaluated and judged by God, just as God judged and evaluated his own work, And then, upon the perfect completion of that work, we were called to rest as God rests. So again, we are made in the image of this working and resting God. We were made to work as God worked, and we were made to rest as God rests. And so this is the main idea I'd like us to unpack this morning. As we consider this topic, this this idea of the image of God. That Adam, and by extension, the entire human race... Are made, created in the image and likeness of our working and resting God. Well, man, as God's image bearer, is called to work as God worked. Man is called to work as God worked. Now, just as one cannot separate the essences of the sun and the moon from their God given commission to rule the day and the night, they're inseparable. So too, we shouldn't merely think of the image of God as some abstract quality that lies within our innermost being. We should think of the image of God primarily as a commission, as a job to do, as work. We are called to work as God worked. Genesis presents in the first chapter of our Bible as a working God, and we are made in the image of this working God. And so what are the specific job descriptions of this work, of this commission that we are given by virtue of our creation? Well, first of all, we are called to speak as God spoke. We are called to speak as God spoke. Now you may recall in Genesis 1, the main tool that God used in creation was what? Boys and girls, what was the main tool that God used in creation? His words, his speech. And God's speech was powerful. Through his very utterance, things came into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. Let the earth bring forth, and the earth brought forth. God's words were authoritative. He named the day and the night, the sky and the sea and the dry ground. Indicating that he has sovereignty over all that he has created. His words were also true. There was an exact correspondence between his words and reality. That really is the definition of truth. An exact correspondence between words and reality. Let there be light and there was light. Well, look with me in Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. What does does God commission Adam to do in these verses? Well, he commissions Adam to name the animals. And we read, whatever Adam named the animals, that was their name. Adam then was commissioned to speak as God spoke. Adam's words were powerful. They carried authority over the animals, and they were true there was a direct correspondence between his words and reality. Whatever Adam named the animals, that was their name. This reminds us that as image bearers of God, we are called to use our mouths. We are called to speak truth with our mouths. Our words are to correspond with objective reality. This is what the ninth commandment calls us to do. This also reminds us that our words entail great power and authority. James chapter 3 speaks about this. Speaks about how how our words have the power to bless and to curse. To bring about great good as well as great destruction. He compares our words to that of a rudder of a ship that, that has the power to steer great and powerful vessels. Man was made to speak As God spoke. Well second. We also see here that man originally. Was called to pursue relationships. As God pursued relationships. Man was called to pursue relationships. As God pursued relationships. Now when you read Genesis 1 and 2. You definitely don't get the impression. That God created all things. And then just disappears. Just fades into the background as some abstract, distant deity. No, God enters into a covenant with his people. He condescends and pursues a relationship with his image bearers. And so we, we who are made in God's image, are also called to pursue relationships with other image bearers. We are called to be within a community. We were made to be social creatures. We were not made to be isolated individuals. Now, the human relationship that most closely approximates God's covenantal relationship with his people is marriage. And Moses speaks about that here at the end of Genesis chapter 2. God is the one who, who established marriage, and later on in scripture we see that marriage is a picture, a picture of, of Christ's relationship to the church. And so the human relationship that most closely approximates God's special covenantal love for his people is marriage. And so for those of you who, who are married, are called to a very good thing. A good that has been enjoined to our image of God commission. But even those of us who are single, who have been called to singleness, whether that be for a season or for, for, for a life, you too are called to be a social creature, to pursue relationships with other image bearers, to find yourself in a community, the chief of which is the church. There are many studies that have come out to sh- uh, showing the negative effects that loneliness and isolation have on us physically as human beings. Why is this the case? Well, We are made in the image of a God who pr- pursues relationships. We were made to be social creatures. And so, man, man originally was called to pursue relationships with other image bearers. But third of all, we also see that Adam, as God's image bearer, was called to guard God's holy sanctuary of Eden as a priest. Just as God is zealous for his own holiness. So Adam was called to guard the holy sanctuary of Eden as a priest just as God himself is zealous for his own holiness. If you look at Genesis 2.15, we read that, that God, after he created Adam, placed him in the garden of Eden for a specific purpose. To work it and to keep it. Now this language of keeping the garden is picked up later on in, in scripture to refer to how the Levitical priests... We're called to keep and guard and maintain the sanctuary, the temple. And so Moses is wanting us to think of Adam as a priest. A priest who is commissioned to guard Eden as God's holy sanctuary from all unholy intruders. Now, we'll see this will become very relevant in Genesis chapter 3. And we'll see that Adam actually fails in this commission as he allows the serpent, an unholy intruder, into God's holy sanctuary. But originally, God commissioned Adam to guard Eden as a holy sanctuary, as his divinely appointed priest. Well, one way in which you can summarize this commission, we've kind of been looking in at some specific Parts of, of the job description of this commission, but one way in which you can summarize this image of God commission is through the Ten Commandments. Adam was called to obey and fulfill the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. Now, as I've said oftentimes before, the first four commandments are all about corporate worship. The first commandment answers the who, the second and third commandments answer the how of worship. And the fourth commandment answers the when of worship. And so we are called as image bearers of God, redeemed image bearers of God, to promote and to prioritize the sacredness of corporate worship. This holy assembly, just as Adam was called to guard the holy sanctuary of Eden. In the fifth commandment, we are called to submit to the authority figures that God has placed over us just as Adam was called to submit that original hierarchy of creation, whereby he was called to rule under God's royal domain, as he was called to rule as God's vice-regent, as a steward of creation. We see in the Sixth Commandment, as we just reflected upon, we are called to not murder, but positively love our neighbor. Which assumes that we fought, we 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 are in a community, in which there are neighbors, in which there are one another's. In the seventh commandment, we are called to abide by the sexual norms that God established in creation, for His image bearers. In the eighth commandment, we're called not to steal but to work, to work, to fulfill the commission that we've been given by virtue of being made in God's image. In the ninth commandment, we're called not to lie but to speak true words, to speak as God spoke. And the 10th commandment, we're called to be content, not ultimately in creation, but in our creator, who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. So one way in which you can think about this, this image of God commission is obedience to the 10 commandments. God wrote the moral law of God on our hearts by virtue of creation. Now, if I, if I were to ask you tomorrow morning to write down all of the potential goods that you could pursue that are enjoined to the image of God commission, if I were to ask you to write down all these potential goods that you could potentially pursue this week, next month, this year, and this season of life, that would be a daunting task. There are, there are many potential good things that you could hypothetically pursue if you were trying to make an exhaustive list. We then, by nature of our finitude, have to be selective about what goods that uh, we, we are going to pursue that are enjoined to this image of God commission. We can't pursue every good that's enjoined to this commission because we're finite, weak creatures. As soon as we try to pursue one good, that means we're not pursuing other goods. And so wisdom, wisdom is the ability to discern what goods God is calling you to pursue in each season of life. And so some of you are married with, with, with children. The Lord is calling you to those goods, and those goods take up the bulk of your time. Some of you are single, which means that the Lord has given you time and energy to pursue other goods that are enjoined to this image of God commission. There's not one good that entails the whole image of God. The image of God is a multifaceted concept, and therefore we have to use wisdom to discern what goods God is calling us to pursue in each season of life. And secondarily, we are called to be content in these goods that the Lord is calling us to. So God created man to work as he worked. God gave man a commission well, just as God created, and then after each day, and then at the end of the sixth day, he judged his creation. He evaluated his creation. And what was God's evaluation of, of his creation? It was good. Indeed, it was exceedingly good. It was very good. So God is this master craftsman, master artisan. He, he looks back. He steps back from his creation and he evaluates the perfection of his creation. In a similar way, Adam's work work was meant to be judged and evaluated as well. Adam was working for a judgment, just as God judged his own work. This reminds us that Adam's time in the garden was a, a probation, or a test, you could say. You know, boys and girls, when you are taking a test in school, you know that when you're taking that test, your teacher, who has authority over you, will grade your test. And based on your performance, will give you a grade. A passing grade, a failing grade, or some grade in between. In a similar way, Adam knew that he was working and that God, as his divine teacher, was going to grade, judge, and evaluate his work. And if Adam successfully completed his work, if he spoke as God spoke, if he um, guarded the sanctuary of Eden as, as a holy temple, then he would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of, my, uh, of, of your master. But if he failed in this work, then he would hear, cursed are you, be exiled from your presence. So, why is it? Why is it that we oftentimes hear echoing in our conscien- consciousness the gavel of God's judgment when we sin, when we mess up, when we make mistakes? Why do we feel that inner condemnation? Well, it's because God made us to work for a judgment, God made us to work for an evaluation. That's part of what it means to have the law of God written upon our heart. Well, upon the successful completion of Adam's work, he would have been invited to rest as God rests. So man was not only called to work as God worked, but he also, upon the perfect completion of his work, he would have been invited to rest as God rests. Now, this is a point that isn't always obvious to people. God didn't put Adam in the garden to work perpetually. I mean, think for a moment how depressing that would be. To be given a task with no end point. To be given a a task with no promise of completion. No, God put an end point to Adam's work. There would have been a time in which God would have came to evaluate Adam's work. And Adam would have passed the test or failed the test. And again, upon the the perfect completion of his work, God would have invited. God would have given the right to Adam to enter his seventh-day Sabbath rest. Now, what evidence do we have from Scripture that, that Adam was made for a higher state of consummation? That Adam was made for God's seventh-day Sabbath rest. Well, again, God's own example. In Genesis 1 and 2, God is presented as a God who works for a rest. And therefore, it would seem to make sense that we, as his image bearers, would also be people who are called to work for a rest. A Sabbath rest. An eternal rest. A rest in which sin is impossible and completely eradicated. Furthermore, you'll notice that in Genesis chapter 2, there are two trees. Two trees that God placed in this garden. Two trees that get significant airtime in this chapter. The one tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other tree is the tree of life. Now, you can think of these trees as sacraments, physical signs and seals of God's audible promise. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a sacrament of sorts, of God's threat of death, If Adam failed the test. Consequently then, every time Adam and Eve would have looked at that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have been reminded in a physical, tangible way of what would happen if they failed to speak as God spoke, if they failed to guard the Garden of Eden from unholy intruders. Conversely, when they looked upon the tree of life, Adam would have been reminded of God's promise of blessing. Adam would have been reminded of the Sabbath rest that he would be invited into if he perfectly did his job as God's image bearer. This is why in Revelation 22, when Jesus is speaking about the consummation, the new creation, he speaks about the tree of life. Furthermore, we see in Hebrews chapter 2 that the author uh, speaks about how originally, before the fall, God destined the world to come, not to angels, but to man. So God promised Adam rest if he perfectly fulfilled his work. God originally made mankind for a higher state of existence and consummation in the Garden of Eden, a place in which sin would have been impossible. The fulfillment of that tree of life. This reminds us that we, as creatures, as image bearers of God, we are by nature utopian. I think for a moment of all the political revolutions that have gone on throughout human history. We as human beings long by our own efforts to bring heaven on earth. But we can't do this. We're fallen. We can't bring heaven on earth. And so what happens is, 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 is this attempt to bring heaven on earth becomes this distorted, perverted, political ver- uh, version of a political utopia. But God made us. He made us for his rest, for his seventh day Sabbath rest. So what does it mean? What does it mean for man to be made in God's image? Well, it means that we were made to work as God worked. It means our work was meant to be evaluated and judged by God. And consequently, upon the perfect completion of that work, it means that we would have been invited into God's Sabbath rest. Now, this relationship that we have with God by virtue of being made in his image has sometimes been referred to as a covenant, a covenant of works which emphasizes the commission that God has given each one of us by virtue of being made in his likeness. And so we would do well to consider, how are you doing in fulfilling this covenant of works? Do you find yourself wholeheartedly worshiping your creator or do you find yourself slavishly devoted to the things of this earth? Do you find yourself being content as a steward under God's royal reign and dominion? Or do you find yourself confusing yourself with God by either being overly anxious or overly confident with your skills and abilities? Do you find yourself seeking to pursue intentional community in your lives in order to first and foremost serve and not be served? How are you doing in fulfilling the Ten Commandments? Not just the external aspects of the Ten Commandments, but truly loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your, your neighbor as yourself. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we all fall far, far short of the standard. We all should be hearing in our consciousness right now the gavel of God's judgment because we have failed miserably. Well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to this earth to fulfill this paradigm, to fulfill this covenant of works. Jesus says in John chapter 6 that he came to this earth not to do his will, but the will of his Father who sent him. Jesus came to this earth to fulfill the commission that God has given to every single image bearer who has ever lived. But Jesus completed this perfectly Heart, soul, mind, and strength. The only human being that can claim that. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that at Christ's resurrection, God declared Jesus to be the Son of God in power. At the resurrection, God declared, pronounced Jesus to be the Son of God in power. What is this declaration? Well, this declaration is God's judgment, God's evaluation that Jesus passed the test. He fulfilled the image of God commission that no other human being ever has or can fulfill. Jesus passed the test which is precisely why after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven and sat down at God's right hand. He entered God's rest, the only image bearer who has has earned God's rest by his own merits and work. And so, beloved, by faith in Christ, Christ's work becomes your work. By faith in Christ, Christ's positive judgment that he received from his Father becomes your justification. And thus, by faith in Christ, you are given the right to enter God's eternal seventh-day Sabbath rest. In a few moments, we will have the privilege of partaking together of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is all about how the Holy Spirit is renewing us, not after the image of that first Adam, but how the Holy Spirit is renewing us after the image of the perfect image bearer of God, namely Jesus Christ. And so when you taste the bread, remember that all that Jesus did in his humanity was for you. When you taste the wine, remember that Jesus shed his blood so that you will never hear God's declaration of curse pronounced upon you. The Lord's Supper is all about What Jesus Christ, the perfect image bearer of God, did for you who believe. Let us pray.